0: Something that I've heard recently that I really love along the lines of generosity is that the privilege isn't bad. Um, privilege is, is a way that the world works, but the, the responsibility of the privileged is to leverage their privilege for those who don't have it. And to me, that's, that's what generosity is.
1: In 2016, I co-founded a drinkware company called Simple Modern. I was obsessed with the question, what would happen if we built a for-profit company focused on generosity? This podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at how we scaled from a bootstrapped startup to nine figures in annual revenue. We'll share with you the strategies we used, things learned along the way, and how we built a different type of company. This is Scaling for Good. Welcome back to Scaling for Good. My name is Mike Beckham, and I'm your host. I'm the CEO and co founder of Simple Modern. And today, I'm excited to have a very special person as our guest. I have worked on a daily basis with this person for, I think, the last 14 years, and I've known them for almost 20 years, going all the way back to their time in college. Uh, we live in the same neighborhood, we're in the same community group, uh, and we've worked together for most of our adult lives. Uh, we're going to be talking with my co-founder, Brian Porter. So we're going to be talking about e-commerce, the relationships at the, the heart of Simple Modern, uh, and what it is to have a great co-founder, uh, and a lot more in today's episode. So Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. So, Brian, your official title with the company is what?
0: It is Chief E Commerce Officer. So we have
1: two CEOs at Simple Modern. I, uh, I like
0: to tell people that I'm the CEO with a little e, the, the little <laughs> e commerce e.
1: Okay, so uh, I guess to to start out with, let's let's start with how you came to be here. Can you share your story leading up to Simple Modern?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I grew up in Norman, um, went to the University of Oklahoma, which is in Norman, um, graduated from there, got married, and started working at a, a company called Quibbids. And I, I, I got to know you in college, um, got connected to, to Quibids through you, um, and spent six, seven years working at Quibids. I was employee number 10 um, in the company. And I didn't know it at the time. It, it seemed like a, a great experience to be in on something kind of on the ground floor. I wasn't a part of the founding group or the ownership group, but I was really kind of the, the first set of employees with that company. And it was quite a rocket ship um, to be on. We experienced million dollar revenue days, ex- explosive growth. And, um, we launched several different e-commerce companies while, um, during those six years from auction models to traditional retail, to, to other kind of variations of e-commerce. And it, it was really, I, I think if, if there was, I, I'm sure there are MBAs in e-commerce these days, but this was like the perfect real life. Um, education e- example of of getting to know what e-commerce is how customers interact with um, digital shopping and different ways to to um, run e-commerce so i did note at the time but it, it really set the table for the next chapter which was simple modern so Yeah,
1: those were very early days for e-commerce you know like Uh, In recent years, Shopify has made it where anybody can set up an e-commerce store in minutes. And you have things like AWS, where um, all of the infrastructure is in the cloud and is handled seamlessly. None of that stuff existed in 2009. So Brian and I go back to an era in the internet and e-commerce where uh, it was the much earlier days, like we literally had physical servers that we had to buy a cage that had a padlock on it and we had to keep the servers in there. Um, And we were at the front end of really learning about e-commerce. This is before Amazon, when we started, it was before Amazon had really started to Fully consolidate the market. I think in 2009, people thought, uh, oh, there's going to be a lot of different companies and and there's going to be a lot of diversity in this space. Nobody really foresaw just how dominant I think Amazon would become. And you had this really weird dynamic where there was a small group of us uh, that were really experts at e-commerce. And if you looked at the most experienced people in e-commerce, most of them were in Seattle because they'd worked at Amazon or a couple of other major cities. And then you had a group of them in the middle of Oklahoma, which I, you know, always joke is the e-commerce capital of the world. Um, but you definitely don't associate Oklahoma with e-commerce, but just uh, through Quibbids and and the success that we had through a few of those ventures, we, we definitely built a lot of those muscles. So- you joined Simple Modern with Micah and, I, Micah and I in 2015, and we we started out selling on the Amazon Marketplace. That's where we had our first sale. And I think most of the people listening to this, if they have any familiarity with you, definitely associate you as one of the top experts um, on Amazon uh, that's, that's active on social media. And so uh, how did you first get involved in selling on Amazon?
0: Yeah, so... It we, we became aware of Amazon um, from our, our previous experience before Simple Modern um, and at the, the process of creating, we, we actually created a, a website where cust- we paid for customers to come and um, we had uh, merchants provide product and they, they were drop shipped. And so we actually had experience creating an algorithm and I, I think the process of, of doing that is, mm-hmm. is probably one of the best ways to approach Amazon, like go through the thought process of if I am trying to rank um, the top relevant items for a- any type of search that a customer is going to come to my website for. How would I do that? What, what are the um, things I would index off of with like titles, descriptions? Um what what type of metrics would I look like to to sort the items that customers would be most likely to buy right So I, I think that the groundwork started getting um, formed during that period and and that predated
1: simple modern you learning yes, about these things yeah
0: yes that that was before simple modern and so we had a really great idea of how to create a listing that would sing to the Amazon algorithm. Um, what, what could we do to uh, really boost that conversion rate? Re- Cause really like Amazon is, um, it, it's a game of, of figuring out two things. One is you need to figure out how to get a customer to click into your listing when they search something, a, a keyword relevant to your mm-hmm. product. So you have to stand out from the other options available. And then once you get the customer to click into your listing, the game is all about, getting them to convert, getting them to add to cart and ultimately buy. So that was really our focus um, with, with starting on Amazon. How do you build a listing that is the best in that category at doing those two things?
1: You mentioned how we had kind of built D2C websites before D2C, direct-to-consumer was even like an acronym and we had learned about building algorithms, we kind of understood the guts of how Amazon was probably structured. And we decided we wanted to s- sell on Amazon. That's where we had our first sale. Um, how did we get to what you would describe as initial traction on Amazon?
0: Yeah. So our our strategy with Amazon, we it's totally a channel strategy versus a product strategy. We threw as many things at the wall as we could have, which with the amount of money that we had in time that was about five different products mm-hmm. um ideally you know the, the more things you can test the the greater chance you have of, of finding the thing that is, is going to be the the best product to go with so um out of the initial set of products that we decided to test really all of them th- did well enough to to order more of if we wanted to they, they would have been um profitable for us but We decided to not do that. We decided to lean into the 32-ounce stainless steel water bottle because it was the best of the options that we tried. And I I say that because we didn't want to do five things just okay. We wanted to be the best water bottle on Amazon. Uh, We saw that as the biggest opportunity in front of us. So, um, yeah, we, we decided to walk away from the other products, really lean into the the water bottle. Um, the, the next question after testing was, "How do you become the the best, the number one water bottle when customers search for that product?" And um, the, the answer that we came up with together was was that uh, customers value ornamentation on water bottles. That water bottles are a commodity that um, probably some form of water bottle was created by cavemen as as one of the first (laughs) products ever. People have been drinking water
1: for all of human history.
0: Yeah. I I think humans have needed water forever. So we're
1: a pretty hard industry to disrupt, you would say. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, So yeah, water bottles have been around. We're we're not inventing something that's inherently new. Mm -hmm. Um, The shape of water bottles, like you can get into nuances uh, about creating different shapes, but they're mostly the same. So the the thing, the observation that that we made was that with water bottles, customers care deeply about how they look. Maybe even more, they care more about how they look than how they function, which is really how customers look at shoes. Um, the only reason why there's thousands of shoe companies in the world is because customers um, care about how they look more than really how they feel. So. With, with that thesis, we leaned heavily into having a lot of different choice for customers to to make to choose from in our in our listings, and so if you looked at our competitors, we had manufacturers who were cutting out the brands, the middleman, and offering product at very cheap prices, and then the other type of competitor was um, is companies like Yeti and and Hydro Flask, great companies that have incredible brand value mm-hmm. so um there's a, a wide gap of low price incredibly high price high margins and we um, fit somewhere in between and we we chose to offer remarkable value not the lowest price but you could choose exactly what you want to choose from um if you wanted a yellow water bottle chances are we have the only one yeah. we're, we're a market of one for that color yeah so um, uh, we, we got all the way up to 45 different colors in a listing, which in in hindsight is just insanity. Like, Which
1: included a hideous Brown, I might add.
0: Yes. We've, we've made things that I think everyone's ashamed of making, <laughs> but to <laughs> so make
1: an omelet. You got to break a few eggs. We've,
0: we've broken a lot of eggs in the process. Um, but it, it was an idea concept that resonated with customers and, um, The the things that really, the metrics that were impacted by this on Amazon were conversion rate. Customers had a lot of things that they could look through and chances were they could find something that looked good to them. Um, But the other unique benefit from e-commerce with that strategy is that it creates more shelf space, so to speak, more ways for customers to, to come into the listing. So if they search for a yellow water bottle, the only way you get shown on that search is if you have one. So, um, there were a lot of colors that we, we could drive traffic into the listing with and with offering things now like Disney, there's really big keywords like Spider-Man backpack is actually bigger than kids' backpack Mm -hmm. and back to school. So really, really great ways to, to get in front of more customers with, with offering a lot of variety.
1: So you really understood Amazon as a platform and how it worked, but it's it's worth saying here that people thought this was a stupid idea. Like people thought us doing water bottles was generally like, and, and there were varying levels of people being willing to say that to our face that this was a stupid idea, but um, I would say that was the consensus among most people is that like in a world with Yeti and Hydroflask that us trying to sell our water bottles on the internet was a very stupid idea. Would you agree with
0: that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if, if you don't understand like kind of the nuances of, of Amazon and what is, um, you know, beneficial to the algorithm, like I agree, it, it probably was a stupid idea, but we, we had a, a, an angle, a way to provide value to customers that currently wasn't being satisfied. And we, we knew that you, and you probably wouldn't, you you definitely wouldn't know that if, if you didn't obsess over Amazon and e-commerce the way that we did.
1: Well, and I, this is one of my favorite points to make is that, um, competition always feels scary to people. And so when they think about coming up with a business idea, they think, how can I come up with something that no one else is selling and I won't have any competition. But the reality is, um, It's exceptionally hard to do. And usually if you find something that nobody else is selling, there's a reason, you know, it's because nobody, the market's not really there that people don't really want it. And whenever you have a lot of volume and there's a lot of volume in water bottles and tumblers, there is going to be a lot of competition. And so I think the thing that we saw, and you've kind of hit on this is, yeah, there was competition, uh, but there was also a lot of demand, and that we had a particular value proposition that we didn't think other people were hitting very well and that if you if you think about it 99%, 99 point something percent of successful startups are actually just a reworked value proposition where they're using a new channel or they're um, offering more selection, or they're offering the same quality at a lower price, or there's a new functionality or feature. And that's really what we saw is that we were able to offer more ornamentation, more diversity of kind of colors and choices. And we were able to offer premium quality at a more affordable price in a channel that at that point was not being prioritized by the major competitors. Yeti and Hydro Flask and others hadn't really pushed all their chips in on Amazon because they've been so successful in these other, you know, physical retail distribution channels. And so it looked like a bad idea from the outside, but we felt pretty confident internally that that we had something. So we started selling. We sold our first water bottle in March of 2016. And since then we've sold, you know, uh, millions and millions of units on Amazon. Uh, There have also been a ton of companies that have come and gone, especially even in the hydration, water bottle tumbler space on Amazon. And why have we not been one of the companies that's had, you know, a period of success, but haven't been able to sustain it? How have we been able to survive and thrive in that environment?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question with water bottles, you can make a really great water bottle. That's as good as any for, um, I would just say significantly less than the the top brands in terms of retail price. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not true of every category we've tried with backpacks. Like you kind of pay for what you get with backpacks in a way. If you make a really cheap backpack, it's going to be really cheap in terms of product quality, mm-hmm. um, so so drinkware is really not that way. And so I, I think what that creates is we can get close enough to the lowest prices on the market, be a few dollars more and, and provide this additional value with our brand where you know you're gonna get a great product. Um, chances are you've tried it before, someone you know has tried it and you trust us. We offer incredible styles a lot more so than just a manufacturer listing Mm -hmm. a a few different colors. And and so we can offer this really great value proposition. The reason why I think that we have been able to be successful over a long period of time is, is it kind of goes back to the essence of how we started as a company. We didn't start with this one product insight of like this one type of water bottle is the thing. Um, that we need to launch and tell the masses about. Yeah. Um, We're built around iterating and testing Mm -hmm. and um, pivoting to seeing like what customer data tells us. Mm -hmm. And the brands that I see come and go tend to get anchored on a, a specific style of bottle and 2017 there was a, a style of bottle with a very narrow mouth that looked a lot like a Coca-Cola style bottle like a glass Coca-Cola bottle mm-hmm. and it was super trendy until it wasn't yeah it's not a practical type of bottle yeah and if you anchor your brand to that style of bottle your brand is going to fade with the style yeah we we sold that type of bottle when it was trendy and we totally phased it out Um, over time. It was hard for me to let go of that because we had a bunch of reviews Mm -hmm. um, and it did well for us for a season, but we were willing to see that the market didn't want that product anymore, walk away from it and make, you know, the products that customers today are wanting.
1: And you nailed this, like to, when you're successful with something, you become emotionally attached to it, you know, like, and you you really view it as a a a core piece of where your business has safety and where you can count on cash flow. And so, it's a scary proposition to actually think, hey, this thing that's been great for us for two years could go away at any moment, and I need to not be attached to it, and I need to be constantly disrupting ourselves and constantly looking at how the market's changing. Um, But to your point, the moment that you stop doing that, it turns out you begin to ossify and and you're going to die.
0: There's examples... Everywhere of companies that have longevity doing this. I, I, I think back to even Apple like I don't think they sell iPods anymore There was a period where iPods were crazy. Yeah, it's a great and point. They've, they've let go of that because I would say
1: the iPod was a turning point in Apple as a company in Becoming what they are now, which is I think the most valuable company in the world There was a point right before they released the iPad, you know, I, I did I do some investing on the side where you could buy Apple They had as much in cash in the bank as they were selling for as a company. Michael Dell famously said, you know, they should just liquidate the company and give all the cash back to shareholders because they'd be better off. And the iPod totally transformed their prospects, but that doesn't mean you can keep going back to that well forever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's ironic we're doing this episode uh, today on a day where Apple's doing their annual iPhone unveiling, but... Like they're at a point with the iPhone where they could just say it's good and maybe launch a new one every couple of years, but yeah. they're, they're doing it every year because Apple's, they have to continue disrupting themselves and coming out with the next thing, especially because technology moves so fast, but, um, they, they can't just kind of rest on the current iPhone that they have or else, you know, Samsung or whoever is going to quickly replace them. So mm-hmm. it's a, a bit of an extreme example, but I think, you know, water bottles are are something not advancing at the pace of technology, but it's true for us, too. Like, we have to continue coming out with new things that are relevant to customers.
1: Part of my thought process of why acquisitions usually don't work actually is tied up in that, which is once a company buys another company, they've put a lot of money out to buy that company and they're going to be really focused on recouping that money that they use to, to purchase. So the, the focus is almost always profitability, you know, from go and where can we cut costs and how can we get the money that we spent on this back as quickly as possible? Um, And the bottom line is investing in development and growth. And what's next is like, that's a cash out activity and it takes a long-term perspective. So the more that your kind of time frame shrinks that you're thinking about the business, the more that you're trying to think about hitting a number for a quarter or for a year or getting as much profit out of the business as possible, the more likely you are to just not invest in continuing to develop. And so I've come to be convinced, you know I've talked about this frequently, but I've come to be convinced that ownership structure is actually a very sneaky, massive competitive advantage. The fact that we are privately held, that we're bootstrapped, that we really don't have to hit any number for anybody, um, that you know, neither you or I have lifestyles that require us to you know pull massive amounts of money out of the business, and that positions us to be able to do whatever we think is best. And as simple as that concept is, it's actually more rare than you would think.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I totally agree and that practically speaking something that it, it allows me to do like with direct ownership of our Amazon business is we can do whatever it takes to try and make a new product launch work. What does that mean? Do whatever it takes. It means that we can price it at whatever price we want to to get the inertia that you need on Amazon to get sales going to get reviews.
1: Okay, so a devil's advocate would say, well, but isn't that diluting your brand? Doesn't that hurt your brand if you, if you do that? If you take a new product and you discount it?
0: Um, you know, that's it's a good question. <laughs> to my experience, and maybe there's a size of brand where it is, um, but for us, there's so few customers that typically see uh, a brand new listing on Amazon interact mm-hmm. with it. And I mean, you could even talk about it as an introductory price. Um I, I don't think that customers are gonna get too bent out of shape over like a short term great amazing value proposition.
1: And affording to be patient doesn't just have to do with how much money you have. It also has to do with how the company's structured, what the expectation are of people in the company. Yeah. It's a great point. And this is something that just doesn't get thought about from the outside, you know, that practically when you're owned by a multinational corporation, the things that they may be asking, you might be asked to do things that don't make any sense from the outside, but they make sense inside of that corporation. And that that actually leads to a couple of concepts that we've talked about a lot internally, but are worth sharing here. Uh, The first is that the moment as a consumer company that you start to make decisions that aren't based on what the consumer wants, but are based on internal politics of the company or financial motivations from within or something that the retailer wants to do, but isn't in the best interest of the customer. That's when you get in trouble. That the moment that you start doing things for, for reasons that aren't the customer, you start to, to lose positioning. And, and yet, you see it all the time, you yeah. know, and, and, in the industry.
0: And I, I, we've even had a taste of this. We, uh, in, in our hyper growth phases early on, we cracked a bunch of eggs, had some really bad inventory. And our finance team has done an incredible job of cleaning up our bad inventory positions mm-hmm. and our bad buys. But um, there, there's a ditch on the other side of having That's bad right. inventory, and it's not being aggressive enough. And we've we've started to flirt with that ditch a little bit, and we've seen some areas where we didn't invest in, into things enough be, for ROIC, return on invested capital reasons. And there, there's a delicate balance of being efficient and financially responsible, but also being aggressive.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think that's worth just underlining that uh, there's a lot of discussion about how do you grow a brand? And uh, from my perspective, a lot of that discussion is a little bit too high level that brand is just the summation of thousands and millions of people's individual experience with something that kind of cumulatively comes together and that's what we really call brand, but it's it's all these more like um, you know individualized uh, pieces and individualized experiences. Um, to go back to the price discussion, most people don't remember what they paid for something. All they remember is if they think they got a good deal. We've actually done research on this where we'll survey people and say, how much did you do you think you paid for the item? And they incorrectly identify how much they paid for it because they felt like they got something that was you know, $30 in value. They say, I think I paid about $30. And it's like, well, that's impossible. We don't sell it for above $23 anywhere. Um, but this is the way that we emotionally process through the decisions that we make. I mean, we, we make ourselves out to be way more rational than we are. And I think a lot of people that are trying to build brands, they can kind of get caught up in, oh, we can't possibly discount this because that would lead to this perception. One of the things is you probably overestimate how much people remember and you're probably overestimating how much people are paying attention to what you're doing. Um, and, And I think one of the insights that we had, this became a rallying cry really early in the company if we're going to grow this brand, we we are not going to be able to spend a bunch on marketing, which I want to come back to that idea. But it's going to be about bottles in hands that people using our product and realizing it's great. Like that's going to be the number one way we can grow brand awareness. and And it's been a pretty effective strategy. So how have you tried to run e-commerce through this brand building strategy of let's get as many bottles in people's hands as we can?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's... That's really how we positioned our brand. We we've chosen to be low margin, to have an amazing conversion rate on search terms on Amazon, on shelves and target. We have a very compelling value proposition. So really, like you said, our our thought has been: if you can provide an incredible value proposition to customers with things they want, grow the amount of people who've bought and used your products and then stack on a very high net promoter score, mm-hmm. which is just a, a metric that tells you how satisfied customers are with your product, that that's a recipe for for growing a snowball of, of customers. And I, I, I really like to think about one of our goals on Amazon is being Like once you get a customer, you don't want them ever searching for water bottles again on Amazon. You want them searching for Simple Modern. That's Mm -hmm. our goal. Um, And if we can accomplish that goal, every year we're going to be stacking on more and more people who are looking for us specifically as a brand. And once you've won the war of getting people off of the generic, I'm searching for water bottles where you're... You're duking it out with Hydro Flask and and Stanley Stanley and, and, and Yeti and Awala, yeah. I, I think high level the the fruit of of the bottles and hands effort has been that we know for a fact that half of the purchases we get on Amazon right now come through simple modern searches on Amazon. Um, it's almost people using it like our website, basically. Exactly, yeah. And, and that that in itself is. is a a very important safety net for us like where if something crazy happened and we're not sur- surfacing on the top 10 of water bottle or tumbler anymore we we still have a huge customer base that's built in
1: yeah absolutely well you and i came from a company that had a spectacular kind of rise and and probably fall based on marketing and i think that that made a huge impact on the way that we viewed building this company. We didn't want to build a company that we felt like was, you know, uh, heavily dependent on marketing and there's some pros and cons to that. It definitely makes growth more challenging and makes brand awareness more challenging in some ways. Uh, Probably the positive is uh, one of the stats I'll share the average D to C company might spend 30 to 50% of its revenue on marketing. You know, Yeti, for example, spends a much bigger percentage of their revenue on sales general and administrative than we do. Um, We, we probably spend about 3%. Um, So that's made some of the brand building and awareness stuff more difficult. Uh, But the trade-off has been that there's probably more stability uh, and it's been easier to get to sustained, um, profitability using the model that we've used?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we always want to be coming out with new products, um, that are able to search surface on new, uh, generic keywords, but we always want to be growing that snowball of, of branded search. And I, like we, we launched kids water bottles in what? 2019. Yeah. Um, so about four years after we launched adult water bottles, and you, you, it's interesting because you can see the lag in our our, uh, br- our branded search on kids' water bottles compared to adult. It's just behind, but we're still we're doing the same thing. We're growing that snowball in that specific category. And every product that we launch, um, we we just launched totes. So mm-hmm. I, I hope in two years that we have a, a big chunk of customers coming to us for that product type, and that that's really kind of the vision for for how I would like to expand and mature categories on Amazon over time.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by The Van Group. About a year ago, we decided it was time to update the Simple Modern website. We desired to create a look that elevated our brand while keeping a focus on performance and speed. We talked to many other business owners for a list of recommendation. And after talking to several potential partners, we chose to work with The Van Group. Over the past several months, we have been working closely with the VAN team on building and launching our new website. To kick things off, the team at VAN did a fantastic job of gathering our input and walking us through a proven process to create a winning product. VAN Group has developed a proprietary brand conversion design framework. Using this strategy, VAN is able to deliver highly creative and performant websites that don't compromise on brand and improve the bottom line. In our experience, we've been impressed by their deep knowledge, creativity, and collaboration. Once our new website launched, the team at VAM worked tirelessly to address issues and to make data-driven improvements. For all these reasons, I'm very happy to advocate for The Van Group and their outstanding team. You can learn more by visiting their website, thevangroup.com. So one of the most uh, critical decisions I think you made in the history of the company is Uh, how we transitioned our relationship with Amazon. So Amazon has been, I think, our biggest sales channel for the entire history of the company. At this point, there are other channels that are getting pretty big, but Amazon is probably still our biggest channel. Um, And at the point that you made this decision in 2000 and late 2019, early 2020, uh, it was maybe 80 percent, 90 percent of the business. So most, uh, a lot of the people that sell on Amazon sell on the Amazon Marketplace, where they basically send inventory to Amazon as consignment. Uh, but Amazon also has a very select number of people that they have a direct relationship with, where they they buy through purchase orders and they own the inventory and they bear all the inventory risk and the responsibility. Um, although we still have a, you know, the, the seller still has a pretty active role in maintaining the listings and the photography. So Amazon approached us in 2019 about becoming a direct vendor. Um, and this was going to be a major disruption to basically, you know, the, the vast majority of the company's revenue. And you made the decision to transition us to being a vendor from being in the marketplace. Um, that was a huge decision. How did you make that decision and how do you evaluate it today?
0: Yeah. So for, for full context is right before the pandemic was when we, um, we did
1: not know that we were making this decision before (laughs) as disruptive an event as e-commerce has ever seen, or maybe ever will see.
0: You would say is ideal timing. Nope. Nope. Um, but it it was our timing. So, yeah, it's a great question. It's fun to think back about because it was such a huge transition for us. So the the, the thought process in making the change from the Amazon marketplace to being a direct vendor, really the, the core of it was wanting to have people at Amazon that we could work with and partner with. If this was going to be the biggest channel that we have, um, we want people that we can talk to about our business. And we don't want to be left up to a combination of Amazon's algorithms, Mm -hmm. whether it's our product rankings or our seller performance. Um, Amazon has a very strict seller performance team that can just shut your account off um, with very little warning. And um, you essentially have to work with people that, are overseas um that you're kept at a a distance from to get it back so all that to say the the amazon marketplace is set up to be a self-service portal to where the seller can do anything they need to do to run their business and they have zero zero connection to amazon like personally um so it's a great setup for the majority of brands we were getting to a size in 2019 where it just it, it wasn't enough for us to kind of be left up to chance if our account got shut down or if we had a, a major issue with with our account um we craved to have partnership there people who could help us it, it would be an it's in amazon's best interest for a brand our size as well to, to, to do well and do the things needed to to sell well on Amazon. So mm-hmm. that was the, the the primary leading decision. Um, it, it took months of going to Seattle. We we both went to Seattle to talk with the team, the Amazon team about this, um, looking at our economics. Would our economics be neutral to where they are in the marketplace? Because if they're going to be worse, then that's kind of a, a deal breaker for us. And we were able to work through all these issues. We knew that it was going to be a step back in terms of executing on changes. Um, Vendor central, which is the admin that you use, it just is not as good as Mm -hmm. seller central. It's significantly worse. So you're kind of signing up for knowing that it's going to be harder. Like sending uh, inventory to Amazon is way harder as a vendor, but it's, like this process is really something that kind of grew us up as a brand, which is something that I, I liked. Um, leading up to this transition, we were way too heavy on inventory at FBA. We had all sorts of SKUs that were beyond the um, long-term storage fee like threshold. We were very undisciplined with how we sent product there. Um, and the transition to 1P forced us to like you send product every week to Amazon and you send basically a week of cover every week um, to their warehouses, which is actually really hard to execute on. We have a 3PL that is fantastic. They did a great job of figuring out because like these POs go to all different places across the country. It's a whole new process to set up. You don't just slap FBA logos on a bunch of boxes and send everything up at once. So. All all that to say it, it was an important step for us to take, um, to grow up as a brand, to do processes that you have to do to succeed in places like Target and Walmart to fulfill their types of POs. There were some benefits that we saw from this transition. One, you wouldn't really think of our data is now collected in, um, the data that, places like target and Walmart use to make decisions. So then, so now they can see how big of a brand we are.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: They don't see Amazon marketplace data. So it actually helped us to get into more retail, uh, making the transition. It's, it's given us stability. Amazon owns all of our inventory, which they don't for marketplace sellers. And they, they, so they have skin in the game with our brand and like that product has to sell. It's, if, if we have listings shut off for, for weeks or a month, like that hurts Amazon as much as us. So there's Mm -hmm. kind of like a partnership in that, in that sense that being a vendor with them brings. So seeing a lot of those like harder, harder benefits of being a vendor, but like it's, it's a setup for longevity and continuity with Amazon. So, um, those were really the attractive, things that that drew me towards wanting to make that decision. And honestly, I I think a lot of the departments in the company, um, weren't very happy with the decision (laughs) and Mm -hmm. probably with me in particular while we were digesting this change. And it took about a year for us to, to really get in a rhythm. But at this point, I, I don't think that anyone would want to go back to being in the marketplace just with like the stability that being a vendor brings.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you you mentioned it, um, but to give the specific story, we started the transition, which we knew was going to break a lot of our listings um, and lead to some short term chaos. We started that transition on um a friday and then wednesday of that next week was when the oklahoma city thunder game got canceled because rudy gobert got covid and then tom hanks announced he had covid and within a 24 hour period the world had kind of shut down and people were being told to to shelter in place and it, it was the beginning of a very wild several weeks it was the the absolute worst time that you could have done something as disruptive as, as we did. And then, like you're saying, we had to figure out all these processes while you're also dealing with COVID protocols and different things. It, it wasn't easy. Another, uh, I, I think, illustration of this is we implemented an ERP over the last two years. There's nothing sexy about putting an ERP in place. There's nothing fun about it. Like I I don't, I, I don't think there's a single thing where I've been like, that's exciting, you know, but it's necessary. And like you said, There have been several points, especially in the last two or three years, where I think we've experienced this is what being a big boy company that the biggest corporations in the world can rely on and that we have the kind of infrastructure and controls and processes we need to be able to become what we want to become. But it's also worth saying, you know, like. That doesn't mean it's fun, you know. And a lot of the stuff that needs to get done uh, isn't isn't fun. It's finding ways to make your systems work with other people's systems and have good accounting and things that are not nearly as exciting as you know sales and and making new products. Well, and part of our story certainly is the rate that we've grown. It's only possible in a world where there are these exceptional companies like Amazon that have these unbelievable infrastructures that. You know, tens of thousands of people have poured their blood, sweat, sweat and tears into you know, and that we're able to come and really, um, you know, kind of stand on the shoulders of of the people that came before us, and. Uh, as a result, we have a brand, if you look at the demographics of where our brand is, it's very evenly distributed across the United States because we grew our brand on Amazon. That's not how consumer brands grew in the past. They grew very regionally and, and moved outward, whereas we've kind of grown from nothing to something in a lot of places all at once. And, and this is part of the fingerprint of Amazon. So you uh, have grown a family at the same time that you've grown this company. In fact, you've had three boys that I think all three were born since we we filed the, uh, the incorporation document. And I know that being a involved husband and father is a big priority to you. How have you prioritized your personal life while still having so much responsibility, growing something professionally that's, that's growing at the rate that Simple Modern has?
0: Ah, uh, man, I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> so it, it's still, <laughs> it's still in whip, right. work in progress. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, my, my first son was born a month after our first product launched. So very much like kind of similar timing with growing both the, the business and, and my family I, I'll say that um, prioritizing my wife is the in terms of priorities, that's that's the number one over the company, over kids. That's the relationship that I've committed to. Um,
1: and this is actually one one thing to interject here. I think this is one place where you and I having value alignment, you know, it isn't just that we have different personalities or different skill sets. There have been some key, core value places where we really align which has made it possible for our partnership to be so successful uh, that we share that alignment that our marriages are a priority and that we want to be successful at business and we want to go hard after it but not at the expense of our marriages or our families
0: yeah absolutely that's that's key and i I know that not not everyone agrees with that idea that the marriage is the the most important relationship so definitely having that alignment is is key um but Honestly, this this experience has is I've felt stretched, kind of like stretch Armstrong, pulled in every different way. <laughs> right. Um I've I've never felt more responsibility in my life. And that, that the fact that I've got more responsibilities than time just necessitates priorities. And I, I have to know um intentionally when to to devote time for my wife. Mm-hmm. and give her the most important time that I can um with my kids just some of the most incredible interactions that, that I have are are when I can fully engage with them mm-hmm. and just know that there's dishes that aren't being done mm-hmm. and wanting to uh whatever it is uh sit and chat with my 7 year old or um, play magnet tiles with, with my, my two and four year old. Um, it just, it, it takes so much self-discipline and intentionality to to do those things. Um, and I, I guess the last thought on this note is b- before we launched the company and before I had kids, it, it felt like I had a, um, a surplus of time to decide mm-hmm. what I want to do with it. Mm-hmm. And now it's, I'm, I'm at a deficit and things like, like fantasy football and whatever, video games. I, I, I think for me, they've just had to go like proper stewardship of my time. is just saying no to the, to the things that I, I like that are just not important in the season. Yeah. And down the road, maybe I can pick them back up, but I, I just have to be intentional with with all my time right now.
1: You know what that reminds me of? It's something that we talk uh, about within the company. We have a core value of excellence. And for several years, I, I think I taught this wrong, where it was just like, hey, we're about excellence. Excellence is about doing your best and not being the best. Go be excellent, you know, was more or less the message. And the more that I taught it, the more I felt uncomfortable. I felt like I'm not, I'm missing something, but I don't know what it is. And really it was within the last 12 Uh, months or so that I I really saw what it was. And, And what I was missing is excellence is cannibalistic. Being excellent at anything requires a lot of time and it requires saying no to a lot of things. And so if you just tell people, hey, go be excellent. It's like, that's actually not helping them because the very act of being excellent means they're going to have to make choices. They're going to have to be not excellent at a lot of things to pick a few things that they can be excellent at and that's really what you're saying like if you want to be excellent as a spouse if you want to be excellent as a father there are going to have to be a lot of things that you cut out or you say I'm going to have to do it way below the level that I could do it at because there's just not enough time for me to do everything at the level I want to do it at especially for achievers for perfectionists like this is really hard the idea that you would intentionally not be your best anywhere is a difficult concept but like you said, I think I've learned the same thing. Like it is just impossible.
0: Yeah, and I, I think one more one more thing on the subject. I uh, an idea that really stands out to me is is the idea that a, a model that I look to is is how Jesus used his time. Mm-hmm. He used his time like he intentionally rested. He intentionally um, had dinner with friends. He intentionally preached, and you know did did the things that he was supposed to do. Um, But this idea that he was um, always on time, but never in a hurry, like he he did the things that he was called to do, but he was also present with the people in front of him is like a really challenging, like kind of aspirational idea for me. And I I really, especially with my kids, I want to always be there like on time, but you know, never in a hurry
1: with them. Absolutely. Everything you say yes to is you saying no to a bunch of other things. You just don't know what they are sometimes when you say yes to stuff. But let's let's talk about the co-founding thing. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages of having co-founders. I want to talk about each. Let's start with the advantages. What are some of the advantages you've experienced of doing this together uh, and doing this as a group?
0: Yeah, I, honestly, I, I think that probably the only... I don't know. The, the the most likely way for me to do anything like this was to co-found mm-hmm. and not to be a solo entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that it's necessarily in my personality to, to do that. Um, it, it, and if it would be, I think it'd be really hard for me. So my, my personality is um, very much one that idolizes um, peacemaking and wanting everyone to get along and um the, the the worst form of me is is one who idolizes comfort and mm. thinks that the goal of life is um is, is the lion king would say it hakuna matata right like Which a worry is not free typically life. typically
1: the entrepreneur's life you don't necessarily think entrepreneurship comfort <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right or if, if you do you think of more of like a lifestyle business where right. you know you're able to whatever, work from the beach. Eight
1: hour work week kind of stuff. Exactly. Or five hour work week or whatever. Yeah, you yeah. don't
0: necessarily envision just like high challenge environments. But I, I do think that the best form of me is one that realizes that there is merit and achievements and like financial growth of a company. There's a lot of great things that can come from that. Mm-hmm. The, the cynical side of me can wanna say, well, all the reasons someone would, would want to scale a company would be, um, for like selfish reasons. Like you yeah. want to, you know, p- pile up a bunch of cash for yourself to use. You want to create this spotlight for yourself, um, to, to have all this respect, but that, that's really not true. There, there's a, a lot of great things that come from mm-hmm. scaling a company. And I, I think that, um, there's a ton of impact that we've been able to have is, is a um, product of having a company that's done well um, that we wouldn't have, have had otherwise. There's ways we can use money to impact people's lives, um, that impact ourselves, like giving money is, is really impactful for us um, personally to, to exercise that muscle of admitting like, money doesn't yeah. make us happy, so I'm gonna give it to someone else. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, going back to the the co-founding question, Mm -hmm. um, I I think that the the benefit for me of of having co-founders is that I've been pushed towards achievement, towards wanting to grow way more than I would want to push myself in that direction. And it's been really healthy for me to to have that in my life. And I I hope that that the balances of of my personality, because I know that... um, leaning into growth and scaling and, and vision and thinking in the future is very much a lot of skills that you have. I, I think that a lot of my skill set revolves around like being in the moments and relationships and um having a little bit of a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the balance of having different personality types, different ways of thinking and co founding is, is really helpful.
1: Yeah. You know, the interplay between our strengths and weaknesses to me is where the really fascinating stuff is. And like you said, uh, naturally where you might gravitate towards comfort, I'm like, let's go, let's push, um, where I might gravitate towards tasks and numbers and accomplishments. You can push me towards people and relationships, um, and I think we could kind of go through a lot of different qualities and say, like, for example, as a as kind of more of a pioneer, visionary leader, I can be like, hey, let's go take that hill. Let's, let's go focus on that next thing. And you tend to think more in terms of making things better and continuous improvement and optimization. And it's created a really nice kind of combination, which isn't to say that there's never friction. Like, obviously when you have different perspectives, sometimes I'm, I'm pushing and you're like, I don't want, you know, like if we're not smelling the flowers at all, like, what are we doing? You know? And, and I need to hear that, you know, just like you sometimes need to hear like, uh, you know, okay, Hey, let's, let's push, let's, let's get after it. Um, and I, I think that it all happening within the framing of our friendship And the respect that we have for each other has made a huge difference that we, we both can push each other because we've put in at this point, you know, literally almost decades of relational equity. And as a result, you can say some things to me that like, and I will receive them that would be harder to receive from anybody else because I know that you know me, you know, and, um, and, and I know that I can trust your opinions and that you have good judgment. And so I think that's been, um, to me, one of the the best parts has been there are so many ways where I, I am weak as a leader, no matter how strong I am in some areas, there's other areas where there's corresponding, you know, weaknesses that come with that. And I really have seen how a lot of your strengths complement those very weaknesses and they, and they work together. But it's not all easy. What are some of the challenging parts of having a co-founder kind of on the same, you know, the same note? Um, if, if there are differences that complement each other, sometimes those create friction. What are some of the ways that you've experienced the challenges that have to be worked through?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I I think in terms of decision-making, obviously when you have a group of people, Mm -hmm. um, you have to come to decisions together. There has to be some form of, of hierarchy or authority that ends up needing to make the final call and it it may not be agreed upon by everyone else. Um, so I, I think that's an area where there's room for, um, tension for sure. In our, uh, I I think in our friendship, there is a lot of respect and a lot of trust. And if, if there's something where there's a disagreement, Mm -hmm. there's willingness, um, you know, apart from a decision that is, is very like significant for the company, there's, there's a lot of willingness to trust someone's opinion. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if it ends up being the wrong decision, there, there are times where it's, it's clear and the other person has the chance of saying, Hey, you know, look at this, this was your idea and it (laughs) it it didn't go well. That's
1: right. I told you so basically. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I, I think that you've, you've done a a, a really good job of, of leading us in viewing like mistakes that we've made as actually opportunities for us to grow. Mm. Um, you, you like to call it tuition, um, you know, paying for a learning and that's, that's what mistakes essentially are. And, um, viewing it that way really, I think has been helpful for us. It, It happens all the time. And what, what I've learned is that, you know, there's hardly any decisions that we make that are a kill shot to the company or just something that really sets us back. It's probably more of a short-term setback and we can work through um, how to unwind that position. And if we collectively like learn that, you know, maybe speculating and and buying a whole bunch of inventory for a product that's unknown, like we we took too much of a reach here, maybe next time, we can t- do a test order and then do a quick follow-on order. Hypothetically, mm-hmm. that's happened before. But in this example, you know, yeah. um, for 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 sake of example, I think that's a good one. Like there, there's ways for us to um, really like kind of engage in a, deci- a decision or discussion, see the results of it, um, acknowledge maybe it wasn't the right decision, and kind of impose those learnings on the next decision. So. I think there's just a lot of grace um, in this room for us to kind of work past things that would really be hard for a lot of co-founders, and they are hard in our um, experience. But we've been able to work past them.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny you you start a company and you think this is going to be about strategy. It's going to be about smarts. It's going to be about execution, and that stuff gets talked about a lot. What gets really under talked about in my opinion is how most of what makes or breaks businesses is actually about the people side of things. You know, like when you, when you really trace out why businesses fail, it's usually due to relational rifts, selfishness, you know, short-term thinking, cognitive biases. It's, it's not that people are stupid. It's not that people pick bad strategies typically. It, It really is the, the people side of things. So the company's mission statement is atypical. We exist to give generously. How have you handled your job differently as a result of that distinct mission statement?
0: Yeah. So I, I think that mission statement has been crucial for our success and, and, and by success, I mean, really just mentally handling the, the scale that we've achieved it, it, that mission statement itself, um, admits that the company is not about us. It, that money is not what makes us happy. Influence doesn't make us happy. It's something to share. And uh, something that I've heard recently that I really love along the lines of generosity is that the privilege isn't bad. Um, privilege is, is a way that the world works, but the, the responsibility of the privileged is to leverage their privilege for those who don't have it. Mm. And to me, that's, that's what generosity is. Um, we, we haven't done anything in particular ourselves that have warranted, um, you know, the amount of resources that we have access to Mm -hmm. there's, it's been a product of circumstances and in timing and all all sorts of things in and out of our control. So, um, there's people who work just as hard as us who have not had the, the fortune that we've had. So, um, it, the the mission statement means a ton to me, and I, I think it is really helpful with with kind of keeping our our eyes, our, our heads in, in reality of, of the situation. But specifically with leading our e commerce team, um, it I, I think there's a few contexts. One is with our partners. It's easy for me to get frustrated with like a someone with our three PL, someone with our manufacturing partner, someone at, at Amazon for messing up or maybe not caring enough about their job. Um, but putting the focus on generosity puts the focus on those people. And like, in reality, they're a part of our team, even though they work at our three PL they're working for simple modern, like mm-hmm. to grow our brand. Um, even the delivery drivers who, who deliver our packages who will never meet are working on our, there's so many people outside of our, our business who are building our brand. Um, that like they're real people, they matter. And I want to value them as a person, not as a, a way to get something, not as a transaction. Not as a means to an end. Exactly. And they, and that's true. Like they're a person who has value, um, who is working as hard as I am, who has a wife and kids like I do. Dreams trying dreams and hardest.
1: aspirations. Yeah.
0: And yeah, it, it, it So it really puts emphasis on relationships, which I love. And then I I think the other thing that it does with e-commerce is like our customers tend to be numbers on a spreadsheet Mm -hmm. and they're not, they're real people just like me who are buying our products. And it's the right focus that, that I need to have that our team needs to have that we need to, to view like ourselves as serving our customers first and foremost. And if we, Uh, adequately serve our customers, then everything is going to be great. Um, so to me, um, finding ways to, for our generosity, to expand to our customer base, um, and, and for our customers to get a a feeling for that. And in reality, our customers, when they buy a product from us, like part of the money that they're spending is going to end up going towards, um, a a cause that we give to. So, they, they get to take part in the generosity that's happening with us, um, which matters a lot to me. But I, I think that the idea of generosity is far reaching in, in many different like elements of, of how we operate.
1: Yeah, one uh, you know tangible example is that you've been very willing to write on social media and and get quite tactical about how we approach things on Amazon, which I know there are you know thousands, tens of thousands of people that really value that they're trying to build a business and they kind of aspirationally look at the success that as you mentioned, we've been really fortunate to have uh, and hold that up as man, I'd love to build something like that. And for you to say, hey, for free, I'm going to give away my thoughts and and instead of having a scarcity mindset of, you know, the things that we've learned and the thoughts that we have, we have to protect them, we have to keep them, like that's our alpha, that's how we continue to win. But instead, hey, we can be open handed, and we can be generous with these things, so that other people can grow and build things. Uh, I think that's a great expression of it as well. The my takeaways from our, our time together, Brian, and this won't surprise you is, I think who you are as a person is a big part of why we've been successful, that your character and what matters to you as a person and in a multitude of different ways that's come out in your leadership as a co-founder and in leading in e commerce. Uh, but I think another thing that stands out is you really have thought deeply about these things and it isn't coincidence that we've been successful Especially with our digital sales, it's a result of a lot of very intentional hard work and thought that you've put in over time. And, uh, you know, I've known you since the very beginning of you working in e-commerce and I've been able to see how over 14 years you've become one of the very best in the world and how it's been a little bit each day and by continuing to focus on it. and, And then finally, I think you have done a great job of keeping the main things, the main things. Uh, and it makes it easy to be your friend and your co-founder and, and to work with you. So thanks for being willing to come on and share your thoughts.
0: Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And, and to me, the the value of doing all of this is, is the relationships and getting to to spend decades with you is is truly um, one of the, the things that I value um, the most and that I, I reflect on is, is really the... Um, the the true like profit of, of the company is, is being able to, to do this with you and, and everyone who worked here. So appreciate yeah. you having me on. Thanks
1: friend, feel the same way. Well, thanks for joining us. That's it for another episode of Scaling for Good.